0: This evening, I'd like to invite your attention to the book of 1 Corinthians, the 5th chapter. And we want to read a few verses there, and then we'll read two verses in the book of Titus. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul said, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then in verse number 11, Paul says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one, know not to eat. Now in the book of Titus, the third chapter, we'll read verses 10 and 11. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself. This morning, uh, as a quick review, we talked about what do we do? What does the child of God do and what does the church do with reference to one that has sinned against another personally. We talked about what Jesus said. Jesus said, if thy brother trespass, in the King James Version it says trespass, and that word means sin, that if your brother sins against you, you are to go to your brother, and between the two of you and only the two of you, you are to rebuke or reprove your brother. And Jesus said that if he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if not, the second step would be to take one or two others, and if he neglects to hear those folks, then it goes before the church. And if he will not hear the church, Jesus said, let him be as a heathen man and a publican. But tonight, for a little while, we want to talk about what does the church do when one is guilty of the immoral acts that are described in 1 Corinthians 5, and what do we do with the heretic? And what is that? A trend prevails among churches in the religious world today to have unrestricted fellowship within its members. If the members are immoral immoral in business, social life, or in their physical relationships, or if they're living ungodly and unrighteous in any fashion, they are deemed worthy of acceptance if they are inclined to be religious. If we do not accept such, we are considered to be narrow, bigoted, prejudiced hypocrites. We are charged with being unwilling to prove encouragement to the very persons who need it the most. In fact, unless we receive them with open arms, we are considered to be less worthy than they. This truly is a sad commentary on our society in general and on the modern religious attitude specifically today. The church at Corinth had its trouble along this very same line. Not only did they have a member who was guilty of practicing fornication, but the rest of the members were proud of the fact that they were so open-minded that they could embrace such people. It was bad enough to have one that was a member of that congregation guilty of the things that he was guilty of, but it's even worse, as the great apostle Paul would convey to them, when the entire congregation, the entire group, were not willing to do anything about, not disturbed about, or even they were puffed up about their condition. At the very beginning part of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, Paul says these words. He said, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. I understand that the word commonly here, as defined by Mr. Robinson and also Thayer, it is defined as everywhere or commonly. Strong defines it as altogether. So in other words, this was an act that everyone knew about. This was not something that was going on behind the scenes that was private and only one or two folks knew about it. This was something that was commonly known throughout the entire uh, congregation. The Revised Standard Version renders this verse like this. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you and of a kind that is not found even among pagans, for a man is is living with his father's wife. The word fornication in our text is defined as illicit relations of a sexual nature, according to Thayer. It is defined by strong as harlotry, which includes adultery and incest. Historically speaking, we are told that acts of fornication were prevalent among the Corinthian Gentiles. However, the specific act that this brother was guilty of ...was something that was even considered among the Greeks and Romans, those pagans, as something that was infathomable. There was no one that would be guilty of such things, even when they would support other forms of sexual immorality. Because this involved a man and his father's wife. And that is considered to be incest. Now, acts of incest have always been strongly forbidden not only by the Christian standards, but also by the law of Moses. Moses said in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 8, The nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover. It is thy father's nakedness. The same instruction is also repeated in the long ago in the book of Deuteronomy, the 22nd chapter, and in verse 30, where the Bible says, A man shall not take his father's wife. Under the law of Moses, the penalty for such hideous sins was nothing shallow or nothing short of death. In Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 11, the Bible says, The man that lieth with his father's wife hath uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. The Apostle Paul says that even the Gentiles would not have even done this. Surely, not even the Gentiles would have their father's wife. You know that word have there, that phrase, have their father's wife, that phrase is translated from the Greek, from a Greek phrase, which means to have or use a woman unlawfully as a wife. That's what this man was guilty of. He was guilty of having a woman unlawfully as a wife. I believe that the phrase, his father's wife, though, refers to someone other than his mother. Even though the Apostle Paul does not make the distinction between a mother or a stepmother here, in the Old Testament scriptures, it does make the distinction between the two. Notice, in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 7, the Bible says, "...the nakedness of thy mother..." shalt thou not uncover, she is thy mother, thou shalt not uncover her nakedness. But we've already read in the very next verse, in the 18th chapter of the book of Leviticus and verse 8 now, the nakedness of thy father's wife shalt thou not uncover, it is thy father's nakedness. And so therefore, it is more likely, I believe, that this case involves a man who has taken unlawfully his stepmother and not his natural mother for the reasons that thus given. The Apostle Paul says in verse 2 then, he addresses their wrongful attitude toward the man. You know, that tells me right there that not only was the things that this man was guilty of hideous and horrible, but also there's something other that needs to be described here. There's something else. Paul doesn't just say addressing this one man's sin. He's addressing now their attitude, their wrongful attitude, and their wrongful acceptance of this brother who was guilty of such a horrible thing. Notice, in verse 2, he addresses that wrongful attitude. And he said, you should have been mourning You should be saddened. You should be absolutely overwhelmed with sorrow that you have have a man among your midst in the midst of your congregation that is guilty of this. But he said this, not only did you accept it, but you're puffed up about it. You're proud of it and so on. When you should have rather mourned or lamented over the wicked character, they were puffed up over that. Even this shameful, incestuous relationship that was among them did not even moderate their self-esteem. Paul then says, I am absent in body, but present in spirit, and therefore I have judged already as if I were present. Let me just notice with you something uh, here about this verse. Some scholars said, well, what Paul was saying is, Is because he was an inspired man, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he could be absent from body, away from that congregation, away from their midst, and be able to judge accordingly as if he was there. Other scholars say that what he was saying is that he was saying that this is so obvious You should have seen it. It's as clear as the nose on your face. You should have been able to discern in this matter. You should have been able to judge in this matter, but you have not. And so what he's saying is, I am outside of the body where you are. I'm not present with you. I'm present in spirit, and I've judged already like I was there. Either way, it's quite obvious that they should have known what to do. And if they didn't know the steps of discipline, they surely should have known to reject this man for doing the things that he had done. And as a result of this, the Apostle Paul pronounces the sentence by the authority of Jesus Christ. The first specification, though, there are three things we've got to notice. The very first specification is it's to be done when they, the church, are gathered together. You know, this teaches me tonight that no final act of discipline can be done except when the church has met together. Now what time or place that this is, whether it's talking about, uh, some scholars said it's talking about when they would normally come together in the assembly. I know one thing, I know when they all came together in the assembly that would be acceptable because that would be a time when they all came together. Whether Paul was saying have a separate meeting and all of you come together, we really don't know. What Paul is saying is the very first thing specified is you are going to pass down this judgment to this brother when you are come together as the body of Christ. When the church has come together, that's the time that you're going to do this. Secondly, and when they would do this, the Apostle Paul informs them that his spirit will be with them In this great and solemn action, which would be true of all congregational actions that are according to apostolic teaching. And that, ladies and gentlemen, would apply to you and I today. Thirdly, moreover, this action would be backed up by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that it could never be considered as an act of personal revenge on the part of the brethren. And so here comes the verdict. He gave the specifications, and now comes the verdict. This is the verdict that Paul is going to pass down that must be made by the congregation also to coincide with what he said in the second letter in 2 Corinthians 2 and 6, that it may be the action of many. Notice. This form of discipline is the action of not just one man, not just two men, but this is the action of many. It's to be done congregationally when they come together. Now, here's the verdict. Sounds rather harsh, doesn't it? Here's the verdict. Deliver such and one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This phrase, according to Thayer, is to give over into one's power or use. That's what he's saying. Deliver this one into the use or power of the prince and power of darkness, the prince and power of the air being Satan himself. Mr. Thayer further explains it in this place as follows. The phrase seems to have originated from the Jewish formula of excommunication. Because when a person is banished from the assembly, he was regarded as deprived of the protection of God and delivered up to the power of the devil. What's the idea? Very simply, the idea is that by expelling him from the congregation, it may cause him to realize the terrible condition that he is in on account of having lived for the gratifications of his fleshly desires. And as a result, he will be his crucifying of the flesh with the affections and lust, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 24. Let me just insert something here as we did on a number of occasions this morning, let me just insert here the ideas to restore the brother. And by the way, what seems to be very harsh and what would seem to be absolutely ridiculous in the world's eyes today, especially in the religious world, for the church to take a stand such as that, I'm gonna tell you something, it worked. And if you read 2 Corinthians in the second letter, we find that this brother repented. And I'll tell you something, this is God's plan. Now, man's wisdom, I might think, no, wait a minute, that might be a little harsh. I think I'll just do it this other way. That's what man thinks. God's way worked. God's way does work. But there's another reason, too, and I'll get to, you to that a little bit later, of why we would put one outside of the congregation for that. The phrase "delivered unto Satan" is not anything new by Paul. Paul used it another time. You remember in First Timothy chapter one and verses nineteen and twenty, where he says, "Holding faith and a good conscience, which having which having which some having put away concerning faith hath made shipwreck, of whom is Hymeneus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme." That's the reason. They needed to learn something. They needed to change their ways. So he said he delivered them over to Satan. He rejected them. He separated himself from them that they might learn a lesson. A lesson is this. The lesson is for him to repent, stop doing those things, and be saved in the day of the Lord. The obvious outcome that Paul desired is that the brother Would, because of the church's actions, repent and put himself in a position to be restored to the fellowship of the saints, where he can so live that his spirit or his immortal being may be saved when the Lord comes again. Next, we find that these Corinthians were so full of pride over their supposed strength that they seemed to think that a simple case of wickedness would not hurt them spiritually. But then Paul uses the illustration of leaven to show how this complacent attitude was wrong. And in this illustration, it would certainly make sense to all those that would understand a little something about leaven. There was enough Jewish Christians in the area, they'd understand about leaven. You know what else? There were Gentiles that were watching Jews when they were practicing under Jewish law to understand also the Jew and leaven. And they would understand phrases like purge out the old leaven. They would understand that about getting rid of leaven. Someone that would bake something would know this too. And I think that's what Paul's message is here. Notice, if you're going to make a loaf of bread, and the bread is going to be this big, you don't have to have leaven that is this big. You only have to have leaven that is ever so small. And it will leaven the whole lump. It will expand, it will grow, and it will overtake it, and it will make the entire loaf rise. You see what he's saying He's not talking about bread, is he? He's saying that something that you people are looking at, that you don't consider could harm you or hurt you as the body of Christ in any way, because this is just one offense, one offending brother. You are looking at this like it could not harm you or hurt you, but let me tell you a little something about leaven. And that's what Paul gives as an example. Oh, they could understand this. They could understand this greatly. Likewise, one bad character who is permitted to remain in a congregation will finally defile the whole body. You know, this coincides with something he said later in this letter. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 33, Paul said evil communications corrupt good manners. And so Paul has introduced the subject of leaven for the purpose of illustration. You know, I'll just mention this, though, because they could understand this. In Exodus 12, he talks about purging out the old leaven here. Notice the connection. Notice how it fits. You remember that at the time of the feast of the Passover and the seven days following, the Jews were required to put away leaven out of their houses, Exodus 12 and verse 15, in order that they might keep their feast acceptably. That's the whole point. They had to get rid of the leaven in order to have their feast acceptably. What's he talking about now? He's talking about doing something. you got to do something now. You as the body of Christ, you as the church at Corinth, must do something in that your feast or your service will be acceptable too. Notice. Paul uses this language on this occasion for the instructions to these brethren. He says, purge out therefore the old leaven, and that is purge out that wicked fornicator. And when they would do that, they would be a new lump, meaning the church would be free from the leaven of this wicked man, and in so doing, they would become fit for the service of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ having now the congregation become unleavened." I know sometimes we don't think that outer influences affect us so, but they do. Let me just say this to you. We know, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if we leave these doors and go through our week, And in all of our associations, if we are completely associated and surrounded with worldly things, we know that's going to weigh us down. We understand that. But the church, God's people, is our place of refuge. That stuff can never go on here. And Paul said, you have to do a couple of things. First of all, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, you have to have your, your service be acceptable. So you've got to be unleavened. You've got to purge out the old leaven. Now what are you? You're a new lump. You are fit for the service, as they were in the book of Exodus as well, under the old law of Moses. And it will not influence you as the body of Christ negatively by doing so. Paul is telling them to treat this brother who is a fornicator in the very same way that God will treat him. Paul is saying how you do it. You don't keep company with, and that word means you don't be intimate with them. You don't associate with them. Paul said in Ephesians 5 and verse 5, he said, For this you know that no whoremonger or unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. To the Thessalonians, Paul said, You remember, have no company with with those. But he said this, here's the reason, that they may be ashamed of the evil deeds that they have committed. Now, he says don't keep company with the fornicator. But we're not talking about those that are in the world. We have to live among them. We live in the world. We're not of the world. That's what's different. We have to live among them. We have to go out and work possibly for a boss that is guilty of fornication. We might be in a classroom of students and have a teacher that's guilty of fornication. We may have all manner of associations in the world that we have no say in that we have to do something with them or have something to do with them in our daily lives. But Paul is saying this, As that is impossible to make sure that you rid yourself from any fornicator in this world, there's something you can do, though, if one be called a brother. If one is a Christian. And that's what he says, and he says, But I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. The phrase to eat is from a word which Thayer defines to eat with, to take food together with. The word refers to the physical act of partaking of material food. The application to you and I today is this. The application would be not to participate with them in any act or any association that would indicate a social recognition that's what it means you know when I invite somebody into my home and we sit down and we have something to eat together I am saying that this person is in association with me that's an intimate thing somebody comes into my home they sit at my table they eat food that my wife had fixed and we sit there together and we eat I am basically in essence doing this I am taking my signature and I am signing my name to the behavior of this brother. If this brother is guilty of these sinful acts and he comes to my house and I accept him in that way, how is he ever going to feel ashamed so that he repents? You know, I made a little quick thing this morning about how we handle folks that are out of duty and so on and so forth. And let me just say this too. I don't believe if somebody's out of duty, say you have a family member that's out of duty, but they're not guilty of these sinful things that Paul describes here. I don't know that they're violating a scripture by associating with them in a social setting. But let me just say this. Let me ask you something. If you have somebody that you dearly love that is not living right, and they're a Christian, and you have complete association with them, and you socialize with them and are intimate with them in every way, how are they ever going to feel the need to come back? You know in the story of the prodigal? The father loved him so much he longed for him and I would just imagine he stood on that porch and waited and waited and waited and looked and wanted him to come back. But you know what happened with this young man? When he finally finds himself among those pigs, do you remember? He thought of two things, didn't he? Two things. What did he realize? Do you remember? you remember what he recognized? He realized, number one, where he was, and number two, where he was not. The third thing he says, my father has servants that have food and despair, and I perish with hunger. I, here's the purposing, will arise and I will go to my father. But what if, what if there was never a a separation of that association? That fellow has the best of both worlds, doesn't he? That's the danger of that. That's what I mean when I said what I said when somebody says, oh, let me just throw one right back to you, Frank. What if it's Taylor and Tanner? That's what I meant this morning. What if I just pray that I would love them enough to do what's right? And just maybe, just maybe they will feel the separation and come back. You know, if you wanna know who the greatest kids in the world are, I'll, I'll tell you later. You know how I feel about those little guys of mine. And as a preacher said one time, I may lose my kids to the devil. And I hope and pray that doesn't happen, but it will not be before the fight. And I'll tell you something, if they get the best of both worlds, we give them absolutely no reason to return. That's why, folks, not out of hatred, out of real love, real love. In conclusion of this chapter, Paul clearly explains the course of action that the congregation is to take toward a brother that's guilty of immorality. Six things real quick. Take him away from among you. Verse two. Number two, deliver such an one unto Satan, verse five. Three, purge out the old leaven, verse seven. Four, not to keep company with him, verse nine. Five, with such an one know not to eat, verse 11. And finally, verse 13, put away from among you that wicked person. The removal of this immoral person has a twofold purpose. Number one, it's done to keep the church pure. And that's what we're a part of, folks and we need to keep it pure. We need to keep it acceptable. How do we do that? We get rid of any old leaven. Number two, as we've said, that he might recognize his error and thereby be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Incidentally, I'll just say this. Paul refers to this man again in the second letter. Pretty harsh here, isn't it? You know what he says when he repented? You accept him. You love him. You forgive him that he might, be, might not be overtaken with overmuch sorrow. Listen, folks, when somebody makes it right, we need to embrace them, encourage them, strengthen them, and do whatever. Guilt's a horrible thing. I was studying with a young lady this week, one of our new members, and she said sometimes the guilt just doesn't go away. When somebody has things in the past in their life that they're not proud of, they know they're forgiven. But sometimes the guilt just doesn't go away. Well, listen, if God can forgive me, I need to forgive myself. That's, a, that's not a very strong suit of mine, but as they say, that's a whole nother Oprah. It's a whole nother deal. But I'm working on that. But sometimes the guilt is so strong It can overcome us, even though we know we've been forgiven. So what do we do, brothers and sisters? We embrace them, we love them, and we encourage them because now they're doing that which is right. Quickly now, one more thing that Paul talks about in Titus 3. He talks about a man that's a heretic. wonder what that is, a heretic. A heretic, Paul says, first of all, In verse 10, "...a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself." This word, heretic, appears only this one time in all the New Testament scriptures. The words, heresy, though, or heresies, are found in other places of scripture in the New Testament like Acts 24 and 14, 1 Corinthians 11:19, 19, Galatians 5 and 20, and 2 Peter 2 and verse 1. Mr. Vine defines heresy as that which is chosen, hence an opinion, especially a self-willed opinion, which is substituted for submission to the power of truth and leads to division and formation of a sect or a party. It carries the meaning of choice, and the word denotes a person who chooses to follow erroneous opinions at the expense of the unity of the body of Christ. The word heretic refers to one who creates the sect or faction by teaching opinions. A heretic would appear, as we look in the case of Titus, A heretic that Paul might be referring to, to Titus, would appear to be someone who was dissatisfied... With the doctrines that are found in the word of God, the apostles doctrine, the preaching of Titus and would reject what he had said and said, and basically I am dissatisfied with what Titus is preaching and the doctrine he's delivering. So I am going to gather others around me who also are dissatisfied and we're going to create a party within the body. We're going to create a sect within the body. That is a heretic. Now, more about that. Not only does he have erroneous opinions, but he propagates them and creates contentions over them. He's the same kind of person who causes divisions and offenses among you, as Paul said in Romans 16 and 17. Let me just say this because this is really important. Because somebody has a misunderstanding about a passage of scripture and preaches it with the right heart and spirit, he just is wrong on the subject. That in itself does not make him a heretic or a false teacher. We gave a whole lot of definitions about this fella. First of all, it's a choice he's making. He is making a choice at the expense of that which is right. And Paul knew that. And Paul told Titus about this fella, this type of person, and what they're doing is they're going to reject the truth. They're going to go amongst the body of Christ. They're going to cause divisions and offenses and so on. And they're going to draw into themselves a faction or a sect of people that also are dissatisfied and love not the truth, as Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Gotta love the truth. You can love the truth and make a mistake. You can love the truth and teach something wrong and not be a heretic. Big difference between someone that's mistaken and someone who is a heretic. A heretic also is more than a person who has an erroneous opinion, but he uses the opinions to create that group. He is a factious person creating a division in the church. Galatians 1 and verse 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul said in one of the few uh, passages of Scripture that repeats itself, in Galatians chapter uh, uh, 1, beginning in verse 8, Paul says, he says, But if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Let him be separated from God. Well, what he says here is, After the first and second admonition, you reject The Greek word reject means to beg off or refuse. It means to avoid all association with him. Paul is instructing the church to refuse or turn away from the one who would create the faction. The congregation would no longer extend a hand of fellowship to him as a faithful brother. Paul says these people are to be marked and avoided, Romans 16 and 17. Paul tells Titus to admonish twice Then, if he remained factious or continued to foster division, he was to be shunned and avoided. And then in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, Knowing this, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. The word subverted means this. Here's the reason. Here's the reason. The word subverted means to turn aside from the proper course. That's what that word means. If I am subverted, it means I've turned, by way of choice, by definition, I have purposely chosen to turn from the proper course. And there's only one proper course. Now, something else. If I've turned from the proper course... It means I'm heading in a direction that I am lost without hope until I what? I change the course. I change my course of action. And as long as I am subverted, turned from that, and heading in that direction, there is no hope. So something desperately has to be done. I have to be woken up that I might return and get on the proper course. Nothing outside of the proper course can be right. It follows that when a man leaves that course, he sins as is here stated. And finally, finally, get this, he is condemned of himself. If that is not a mouthful of personal accountability, I don't know what is. He's purposely chosen to take the improper course at the sake of loving what was right and now he is condemned of himself. This doesn't mean that he accepts his wrong either. You know what this means? He's made the choice, and he's lost, and it's his fault because that's the path that he chose. That's a heretic, folks. He's condemned by the things that he himself is doing, and he made a conscious choice to do so. Three things. Personal sin, one sins against another, we learn that, what to do, those are the steps of Matthew 18 and only Matthew 18, and the idea is so that folks will come to the realization that they're lost in that sin, make it right, and save the greatest possession they have, and that's their soul. <clears throat> one that's living in an, immoral, uh, in an immoral environment, one that's doing immoral acts, First Corinthians 5, we notice exactly what we're to do there too, we're to reject those and purge out the old leaven so that they will see the need to come back and also keep the body of Christ pure. And finally, the heretic who's chosen this path after the first and second admonition, reject. You know, Bible talks about God is love. Bible talks about wonderful things. It does. But it also talks about disciplinary things as well. Let us never embrace wrong at the expense of doing that which is right.